A very warm welcome to Dr. Alexander Norbech. It's a great pleasure to have you here and to talk to you about the COVID-19 situation and how you and University of California, San Diego, is uh, dealing with this pandemic. Let me introduce you quickly, uh, Alex. You are an interventional neuroradiologist, and you are also chair and professor of radiology at University of California, San Diego. I think you are a highly recognized uh, specialist in the endovascular neurosurgical techniques to restore normal blood flow. And I think maybe you can give us a little bit more insight in what you are doing. But again, a big thank you for being available. I'm really very grateful for your time. Good morning, Krista. It's a pleasure and an honor to join you. And I thank you very much for, for all you do for us so that we can practice effectively, whether as individuals um, or whether as a discipline of radiology. So thank you for the innovation, the novelty, and the dedication to excellence. Thank you. I'm privileged to serve as the chair of the radiology department we have about 80 total faculty, including research faculty and clinical faculty. And we are here at the University of California, San Diego, as part of a system, the University of California system. As you know, we have colleagues in Davis, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Irvine, Riverside. We're proud to be in California. We very much pride ourselves on the innovation and the excellence in clinical provision of care. Yeah, thank you very much, Alex, for the short introduction. Very impressive and I think it's a pleasure to know you because I could learn already a lot from you. I think you think also much broader when it's about uh, integrated diagnostics. We had various discussions utilizing not only imaging data, but also, you know, pathology data and other things. So it's always very inspirational, very inspiring to talk to you, yeah. If I may, let me start with the first question. First of all, how are you in tough times, in COVID-19 times, uh, the pandemic, and how is this current situation affecting your personal life? Christoph, it is a very emotional time. When you read about crises and you learn about challenges, I think we're all struck by a couple of things. One is that there is a natural emotional reaction, an emotion of fear, of change, of failure. And at the same time, to be successful, you find individuals who are galvanized by the opportunity, who are challenged by what they can do, because it's in times of crisis that we can potentially have the greatest impact. It's in times of crisis when we can enable the most drastic changes that we otherwise couldn't have. And so my personal sentiments are obviously fear of failure, concern about the future, inability to solve problems. And I try to suppress that with a sense of inspiration and mobilization. And some have called it, uh, notably, the rapture of action. This is an opportunity to do things you otherwise couldn't do. And that's exactly what we're seeing. We're trying things now that we wouldn't have tried before because they would have been too difficult to do and we're able to succeed at it. It's a time of inspiration and fear. It's a strange blend of emotions. And on a personal level, there are a lot of changes that have taken place for me. As an example, part of what I typically do is travel to professional meetings. This has forced me to stay in my home environment 
closer to my practice in a continuous manner for over two months. So it focuses my energies on my institution and my faculty to a greater degree, which is a very, very positive thing. It's interesting because it's pretty similar to our and uh, my situation, certainly. I mean, Personally, I think I had quite some challenges explaining my kids what a virus is and uh, how deadly it is. And my my daughter, six years old, I mean, you know, she's still touching me and saying, oh, it was only, you know, a short touch. This is not a problem and so on. So it's not so easy to really convey this uh, to the family yeah, and and to discipline all, right, in terms of social distancing and so on. What you have said is, uh, I think you put it very nicely, is spot on. I mean, also we work, um, including the board, we have decided to work completely from home and social distancing us, which is a great experience on one hand, because I would have never thought that this is possible uh, so efficiently. I mean, Our IT folks, they do a great job in uh, maintaining the tools and all the video conferencing and all what you need for this. But nevertheless, I have to say, missing interaction with human beings and not only two-dimensional pictures or video uh, streams is missed. And certainly, I think for all of us as human beings, very important. Yeah, In terms of travel, I have to say, same for us. We, of course, have, let's say, some important focus points. First, we protect our employees. We want to keep our employees safe. Secondly, we want to help our customers, of course. And it goes, you know, not only providing, let's say, help to fight the pandemic, but also services and so on. This is also very important here for we need to travel. But I think in general, we have uh, travel minimized to the urgent need, let's say. Yeah. So it's in essence pretty similar to what you put so nicely. Alex, can you give us an impression about the current situation in UCSD, in the radiology department, maybe on a different level, even on the university level? How do you deal with this crisis? So Christoph, there are multiple domains that have been affected, and I'll, I'll try to summarize two or three of them. So there is clearly an effect in terms of the sense of protection and vulnerability. People are, were, at least initially, very concerned about catching the virus or having their loved ones catch the virus, or worse than that, inadvertently transmitting the virus to their loved ones and family members. And so there was this sense of apprehension, affected morale, and some of the caregivers were inspired by the opportunity to be on the front line, and some of the caregivers were frightened by that and questioned the need to do so. And so one domain that demanded attention was the morale domain. Another domain that demanded attention was the operations domain. What do we do in terms of having adequate personal protective equipment? How do we change the spaces to be safer by having, for example, sneeze shields or physical separation of patients or knowing how you wheel them, where you take them, how you clean the machine when you're done, how long do you leave the machine open? And then the third domain that we were all affected by was the financial domain. Because as our governor mandated staying at home, sheltering at home, our business dropped off. And during that first week after the shelter at home edict, we had several days when we were only operating at 20%. And so over the past couple of months, we've had a sustained drop of about 30%. And initially for several weeks, it was 50%. The morale we addressed by verbalizing our appreciation for people communicating more frequently, sharing information, having aligned messages between different managers, 
And so the morale took a lot of figurative, not literal, hand-holding and took a lot of contact time. The operational piece took our connecting with other institutions to understand what best practices are, how they implemented them, what the lessons were that they learned, so that we would be able to do the same in terms of on the operational side. And on the financial side, it took some difficult decisions. You asked about our larger environment. Our university is expecting to lose $450 million by the end of the calendar year as a result of the COVID crisis, as a result of the effect on international students, housing, tuition, and all that that entails, including our health system, which so far has lost $160 million that was unanticipated. And so the effect financially It's exactly what you would expect. We have a freeze on new hires, a hard freeze. All contract workers uh, are being critically viewed and the vast majority are being suspended. We have to consider potentially furloughing faculty. We are considering also, again, early retirement for certain individuals while also looking at every single line item in our budget critically to understand whether we can defer expenses or whether we can remove expenses from our balance sheets. And so this is the first measure of aggressive cost cutting. And that's before we have additional resurgences. So we are really trying to understand what we need to do in 2020. And we're holding our breath and hoping that the measures we've undertaken are adequate. I believe the way our organization has tackled this has been extremely thoughtful, very organized, and in keeping with what I hear from my colleagues and friends elsewhere in the country. And again, in an instance like this, I cannot mention how important and critical those connections with other individuals are. Making sure that you have a network of individuals to fall back on when times are difficult and when facing challenges you have not had to face before. I mean, clearly very serious situation for you, but obviously very, very well managed. This is how we know the University of California. Do you have a crisis management process in place? Do you meet on a regular basis with all the faculty members? How, how is the process? How do you manage all this? We've had classically a crisis approach boilerplate. I think the challenge is when you don't use certain muscles, they aren't as strong as you want them to be. And so, again, we're learning in the moment how that crisis management approach can be improved. And, you know, we we see this. I mean, there are institutions and organizations, academic medical systems who are in regions that have been struck by hurricanes, by flooding, you know, New York City with everything that happened with Hurricane Sandy. And so in the short term, institutions mobilize and learn and accommodate. And the challenge, I think, is this tendency to forget in the long term and to go back to you know, methods of behavior that aren't necessarily helpful for crisis situations. So, for, for example, for us right now, the CEO of our health system has twice weekly huddles with chairs and chiefs. She has an every week town hall. We in radiology have a town hall every week. I just had a town hall this morning with all of my residents. So our frequency of communication has changed and our hierarchy of communication has also changed. In the past, I would rely on my division chiefs to carry messages to my individual faculty. Now, I understand that individual faculty may have concerns they may not voice to their division chiefs, but they are curious about and they will voice those to me given the opportunity. And so we're broadening 
the ability for communication that we have in terms of the style and the context and the messages. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty comparable to us as well, Yeah, where we have also established very early during the onset also a crisis management team with all the processes, uh, you know, communication, supply chain, all what you need. I guess it's the same on your side. And uh, yeah, we actually met daily. And uh, for us, it's also global responsibility because, you know, we have more than 120 countries we need to serve. So we had also to figure out, you know, what is in the headquarters responsibility and what is in local responsibilities because this virus so far, as we see, is traveling from China to Europe and from Europe to the Americas. It's quite complex management. And it was interesting to see, by the way, also the communication and demand from the governments to us, because obviously there is a significant increase or the significant increase of demand for, you know, mobile x-ray units and CTs and blood gas instruments and all this stuff. And we had to make sure, you know, that uh, we could deliver at every point in time and has been quite intense communication then also with the government. So I fully understand uh, managing this in a complex network like you see is certainly not easy. You said the morale domain. This brings me to the question, how do you motivate the staff in these challenging times? Yeah, I remember I read this. You gave an interview in the RSNA journal and you said as a leader, you realize you can mobilize people to do things in aggregate that seem impossible for one person to do. And this struck me. I found this exciting statement and uh, would like to know the recipe from your side. Well, I think there's several elements to this motivational question. Well, the first is having kind of a genuine message, having integrity and having presence. So that, that presence means caring and being available. And so, you know, one of the things I did for the first couple of weeks here, I made a point of walking around from site to site, obviously with my PPE on, and thanking people individually for being there and being present. That's a strong sign. So I think frontline presence for individuals like me, it's important at moments like this so that Everyone knows that I care and I'm grateful and that it's a, a shared responsibility and a shared sense of presence. So I think the presence is one thing. The other is appropriately verbalizing appreciation, not just saying thank you for everything you do, but actually picking out individual events when people went above and beyond the call of duty and advertising that and thanking them publicly. So making sure that you appreciate individuals in a meaningful way. And then the other is obviously elevating their vision, reminding them of an aspirational goal of what it is that we're there to do. I believe that all people expect at least two things. They expect a certain level of autonomy. And I also believe they expect to have a certain sense of purpose. And it's helpful to establish that purpose as a heightened purpose, a noble purpose, a purpose that is motivating for them not only in the moment, but in a durable manner. So reminding them of how frightened our patients are, how important it is for us to deliver exceptional health care, how important each individual interaction is, I think that gives them a sense of noble purpose. And that sense of noble purpose is all the motivation that they need. Yeah, this is very impressive and I think makes perfectly sense to me and to us because, of course, we also express our gratitude and, uh, you know, appreciation to our team. It's interesting 
you know that we are 53,000 people around the globe. And I am really struck by the high motivation of the team. You know, they really live up to our purpose, you know, help people live healthier and longer and help through this very, very bad crisis. So appreciation is certainly a big, big topic. I mean, even more on your side, being really at the front line, but, you know, our service and other colleagues also work in the front line, let's say. And from that point of view, it's amazing what the teams can do and uh, have done so far. I can only also uh, express my deep uh, gratitude for all of this Yeah. Coming back quickly to what you said in terms of losses you expect for the calendar year and, you know, drop downs in the numbers and in the patients not suffering from COVID-19. I think a large number of these interventions had to be postponed. How do you see this coming back and how do you prepare for the patients coming back? So there are a couple of observations we've made and we've compared our numbers with others. There are areas in our department that have had dramatic decreases in volume, as you would expect, especially screening studies. For example, screening mammography has dropped dramatically and has had a sustained drop because patients can put it off and they feel as though there's a little loss only in waiting a couple or three months for that next study. There are other areas, most notably PET-CT, where we've noticed that there's been virtually no drop. That has been a surprise to us, but I think it's easy to explain. It's easy to explain because cancer patients are motivated and cancer patients do not want to wait. Even though they're at heightened risk for getting COVID in the healthcare environment, still those patients come in no matter what. And so there are, there are other areas that are surprises. In New York City, because of the dramatic number of COVID patients that they had, their chest imaging services went up in volume with dramatic increases, doubles, triples in their volume of portable chest x-rays, for example. However, even in New York City, the total amount of chest volume didn't go up as conservatively as you would have expected because the screening chest studies fell off and all non-urgent chest CTs fell off. So that has been a surprise in those large centers. For us, the chest volume decreased consistently and then last week finally went up a little bit greater than it had been before. We only have 33 COVID patients in-house 13 of whom are intubated in our ICUs. And so, you know, again, the number here in California has been small. It hasn't been like New York City, where they had a flood of patients. Here, the, the experience for us has been a surprise that only 2% of our population is antibody positive. So we do not have herd immunity. And of 3,000 of our healthcare workers that we tested, only one was positive with polymerase chain reaction, and that one person was in orientation coming in. So the PPE really, really works. And so we let our staff know that the environment is safe. We let our patients know that our environment is safe, but the patients are still staying away. Interventional radiology is a midway point. We only had a drop of 15 to 20%. So many of those patients are still coming to us. And what little drop we have, we can accommodate for on the resurgence of the non-COVID patients. We do have protocols in place and we advertise it with our patients to protect our patients and our staff. Every single one of our patients who has an interventional procedure is both antibody and PCR tested. 
to make sure that they do not have COVID. We demand masking of the patients and of our staff in all situations where there are procedures and there's close proximity. We're meticulous about wipe down and clean down procedures. And we are very, very mindful of our operations management, closely watching our data to ensure that we're having adequate throughput. We've also let the hospital know, the health system know, that we want additional recovery beds and we're securing for those additional recovery beds in our post-anesthesia care unit. So it's a matter of thinking of the resources we need and having the right leadership in place. My interventional radiology chief is truly exceptional. He is an outstanding leader. He's been able to verbalize effectively with an eye towards operations and towards inspiring the staff. So I believe we're effectively configured for that resurgence. Yeah, I mean, this is amazing. I mean, the numbers so different to what we hear from the rest of the world. And it's uh, in particular very special what you are saying, because San Diego is so close to the border to Mexico, right? And uh, you would expect shift between the countries, right? And some maybe more serious situations caused by that. But obviously, this is not influencing what you experience, right? Too much. Christoph, to your point, that is the big challenge for us. We're looking at Tijuana which is a border city that is, is very close to San Diego. It's maybe 15 miles south of where I am. Tijuana is having dramatic problems. And I will tell you what our health system is doing. Our health system is sending our experts down to Tijuana to help them with telemedicine. The best thing we can do is to have tight connections with them, whether it's making sure they have web cameras in place or that we have Zoom meetings together to help them as much as we can to provide care in place. Many of the American citizens who live in Baja, Mexico, near Tijuana, many of them, as they get sick, do come north of the border. And so the hospitals that are in the south part of San Diego are filled with COVID patients. In fact, one of the hospitals in the south part of San Diego overnight went from 80 COVID patients to 130 COVID patients at one point last week. And so the flood of patients from Mexico is a real consideration for us. And some of our more recent admissions are from Mexico. So we have that concern. And what our CEO is doing is our CEO is working with all the other health system CEOs in the area to make sure that they work together. They understand what the network opportunities are, how much capacity they have, and how they can help each other. So this has been a moment of unique collaboration as individuals who otherwise were competitors are threatened by an outside entity, the virus. So we are looking to that, we are concerned about that, and we are mobilizing all the resources we can to address that squarely. We believe telemedicine is a great temporary patch in this instance. Uh, that's a great point. Let's talk quickly about research around uh, COVID-19. Yeah? I think the University of California will provide two million in seed funding to scientists across the state to help jumpstart their high-impact research projects. Has research changed for you now, given the COVID-19 situation? And what are the most important areas of research for you now? So I will use one example, if I may. I mentioned earlier that having a crisis gives you greater latitude in innovating and implementing. We have an artificial intelligence laboratory that is rather innovative and creative. And the leader of that laboratory approached me early on during the crisis and mentioned that he was developing an algorithm that could automatically identify pneumonia and it could do so before humans could identify it. 
And I asked him how he was able to do this. And he had trained his algorithm on 40,000 chest x-rays that had been classified and categorized and effectively evaluated in terms of what they demonstrate. What we were able to do, we were able to accelerate its implementation into our clinical practice. And we did so in the matter of two weeks by putting it on our packs. And what happens is these images that are highly affected, they have large colored blotches where the pneumonia is that you otherwise couldn't see. And so this has not only been popularized here, we're planning on exporting it to all of our University of California sites, recognizing that we um, have 16 million patients under the entire UC umbrella. And so innovation is accelerated. And I believe things like artificial intelligence are going to blossom. We all know that the epidemiologists and the population scientists are going to be working with COVID for the next 20 years, trying to figure out what have we learned what led up to it? What could we have done differently? So my sense is the domains that are going to benefit from this, clearly artificial intelligence, clearly automated systems and protocols and standardization, clearly surge planning. We have not planned for surge very effectively. In some countries, they have. We have not accommodated for that, and we need to be doing that. And then the other area, which is really important, is the area of comorbidities. We know, for example, that um, many of our Black and Hispanic patients do poorly. They have nearly twice the mortality rate when they get COVID. Well, why is that? Well, it may be in part because they have higher incidence of hypertension, vascular disease, of diabetes. Maybe it's because they're in closer proximity to each other and cannot afford social separation because they have to take public transportation and can't take automobiles to work. There are so many bits and pieces to this understanding where comorbidities are concerned that my sense is there's going to be a lot of time and energy invested in those areas also. There's so much to learn, Christoph. Yeah, this is true. I fully share also your view on the digitalization and, and in particular uh, artificial intelligence. We have also, you know, in let's say literally light speed, set up a, a global waiters network, let's say, in this area and uh, develop a prototype or prototypes AI-based for exactly what you described, uh, detection of uh, pneumonia and the differential diagnosis. That's all very exciting. And what you can also see during this crisis now and what you can experience is everything goes much faster, as you said, right? Things which formerly took months and sometimes years could be accelerated now by really days or weeks. Yeah? So it's uh, really significant all by the engagement of the people and their strive for helping the customers and the patients. So that's very impressive. And I think in general, this crisis has probably boosted digitalization by many, many years. Yeah, You mentioned telemedicine, right? Not sure how you experienced this, but I've heard from, from customers quite often, you know, they experienced a steep increase in televisits during the crisis. So this is all around digitalization and I'm sure we all will benefit and the patients will benefit from this push. Let me switch gears for a second because I believe there is a link to it. You have published on the importance of diversity inclusion. You went into the business case of diversity and inclusion and the state of California issued a statement against discrimination in the response to COVID-19. How do you organize help for everybody? So I mentioned earlier, I believe that telemedicine can be to some degree an equalizer and can bring resources to those who don't have it. Part of the challenge, it has to do with disparities in care. 
We all know that imaging equipment, although it's costly, it returns dramatic shares back to society when it's utilized effectively. The challenge is that disenfranchised populations simply don't have access to imaging equipment the same way that affluent populations do. I know that Siemens, as an example, has looked at developing a full range of CT scanners, making sure that there are robust models available for every single price point. So I think availability of imaging equipment across the broad range of health systems is a very important thing. The awareness of disparities in and of itself mobilizes organizations and systems to try to address those disparities. Also understanding you know, how we work as networks. I think that's a very important thing that we can do that we have not done so far. My hope is that following this crisis, there's going to be a renewed sense of aspirational purpose in terms of benefiting society rather than simply doing so financially. Much of the consideration that we received in terms of financial assistance as an industry is because of the value that society saw in what we're doing. I hope and I believe that following the COVID crisis, that society's respect for what we provide is going to increase. And my hope is also that when able, society's investments for a period of time in prevention and in healthcare and in disparities is also going to increase. That's my expectation. Yeah, makes very much sense. Diversity and inclusion also matters To us very much, I believe for the long-term success of a company, very important to really attract and retain the best people. And if you live from innovations like we do, yeah, you need really people from all over the globe putting their brains together and bringing in their perspectives. Yeah, I told you 53,000 people in more than 100 countries. Yeah, it's super important for us to leverage the cultural diversity that is inherent in our organization. Yeah. I believe this is a very important topic and is fueling also, let's say, how we interact with each other very much. Yeah. Having 53,000 individuals who are focusing on the growth and innovation of a company, that, in my opinion, is your greatest asset. If I have 10 people who have lived similar lives to me, have similar tastes, similar perspective. And if the 11 of us are sitting in a room and trying to innovate, the innovation is limited. If those 10 people have 10 vastly divergent experiences and lives and perspectives, if we put them in a room, as long as they can freely communicate, you have a dramatic opportunity for innovation. I can only imagine the degree of innovation possible when you have 53,000 different lives and different perspectives that you mobilize to try to innovate and solve problems. It is a spectacular opportunity. Yeah, I can only hope that all the 53,000s are going to listen to this podcast and can hear your very nice words. And I couldn't have said it better. Yeah, I fully agree with you. And this is what we we are experiencing every day. And this is, you, you said, Our biggest asset, I think you are right. Yeah, this is really our lifeblood, let's say, yeah, and makes us different. I think we need to come also to an end here. And I would like to use this opportunity and ask you the final question. What can healthcare as a whole learn from COVID-19? How do you see this? So, Christoph, I think there are two or three issues that really are conspicuous in my mind when I think about this experience. The first is we are all interconnected. What I mean by that is China's problem 
becomes Spain's problem, becomes Iran's problem, becomes the U.S.'s problem. These partitions that we believe exist where healthcare is concerned, they do not exist. Everything affects everyone. And so we have to be mindful of the vast landscape of what's happening everywhere in every part of our discipline, because we have to export all of those innovations to problem solve. So that's issue number one, is the global nature of our problems and the essential global nature of our solutions. And for a company like Siemens, that's wonderful because you have all these disparate elements that are interconnected under one roof. That gives you the power to innovate and to problem solve and to understand the challenges. The other is there are individual epiphenomena that are occurring. For example, distance work. You and I are now realizing we don't have to be physically in one spot every minute of every day. It's possible to do things remotely, whether it's the telemedicine piece or whether it's management meetings. And I believe that that distance work is going to take on a greater degree of influence and presence in our lives than it has before. So that's the second thing that I think is interesting is to see the positive effect of technology that can be facilitated and expedited by this crisis. And then the third issue for me is the challenge of complacency. The challenge of complacency is when you're focusing on the next quarter's profits and you're not accommodating for the crises that might occur because we're happy and things are going well. We have had crises in society every so often. And after the crisis, we tend to forget about it. When we read, whether it's about the bubonic plague, whether it's about leprosy, whether it's about the influenza epidemic that went from 1918 to 1921, horrible, terrible, challenging events occurred and we tend to forget about it. And so as long as we're alive, we can't let that happen. We have to remember that disasters can occur. We have to accommodate it. We have to leverage our brilliance to optimize our service to society. Perfectly put. Very impressive how you summarized it. And uh, I couldn't agree more. It makes all perfectly sense. I mean, to your globalization statement, yeah, there is no partitioning, let's say. We are in this all together, yeah, you said it rightly, it's also our lifeblood, yeah. I also believe it's not only about global problems, it's also about global problem solving the solution. So you are spot on here. And in terms of remote work and what we have learned so far, I think not only for this pandemic, but in general for infectious diseases, I strongly believe, A, they will become more and more significant on the globe. Yeah, It's not only COVID-19, as we all know, Yeah, and doing things remotely, protecting also employees yeah, in the front line and so on is also very much to our heart, distant controlling of modalities like MR or CT or even, you know, doing intravascular interventions with robots now. This is strategically, in our point of view, very important. Yeah, And then the challenge of complacency or not falling into the trap of complacency. This is a very, very good point. We need to fight actually every day because, you know, with us, it's about we, we compete in an environment always, you know, for the best solution. And if you want to keep up the leadership, it's very important that you avoid any complacency. So very, very important points, Alex. Yeah. I would like to close here yeah, and can only say it's been a great discussion with you. I have learned a lot. You have demonstrated to us a very professional management in the University of California and in particular in San Diego. 
So I have to say, you leave me very impressed here. Yeah, been a great honor to talk to you, Alex. I wish you really safe and your family, of course. Yeah, thank you for your time and for all of your explanations and how do you see this crisis. Yeah, let's keep in touch, Alex, and talk to you soon. Thank you. Be safe. Christoph, I'm honored to have participated. I thank you for your personal leadership and I thank Siemens for all they provide where global health is concerned. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Alex. Uh, it was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you.